Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Going under the knife for obesity. This is episode 31 and it's obesity part four. Our first podcast on obesity iterated that obesity is a chronic disease with multiple medical consequences. Lifestyle modifications are advocated as first-line treatment for obesity. On prior podcasts as well, we covered dietary approaches including all the different diets, intermittent fasting, physical activity, and exercise. However, when BMI reaches about 40 kilograms per meter square, risk of obesity way outweighs the risk of bariatric surgery. Weight loss of more than 100 pounds by lifestyle modification and even medications are, for the most part, untenable. Individuals with BMI of 35 to 40 may also be eligible for surgery if they have at least one serious comorbid conditions like, for example, diabetes or hypertension. For Asians, this BMI criteria may be lowered by 2.5. To shed more light on this important surgical intervention for morbid obesity, Dr. Shusmira Ahmed was so gracious to come to my show and discuss the benefits of surgery, the risk, how patients are prepared for surgery, and what to expect. She will also discuss lifelong lifestyle changes necessary to maintain the weight loss from bariatric surgery. It is a great opportunity to welcome Dr. Shusmita Ahmed, who I am so proud in saying was one of my star medical students at Stanford University Medical School. She is not lacking in passion, determination, and perseverance. I remembered her as one of my extremely dedicated and motivated students. She trained at Stanford in general surgery and obtained her bariatric fellowship at UC Davis. She is currently the Associate Program Director for General Surgery Residency Program at UC Davis Medical Center. Once your mentor... Shusmita, I am so honored now to be on the other side of the spectrum as one of your students learning the surgical approaches to obesity. I'm so excited to have you. Welcome, Shusmita. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so very honored to be here and very excited to be interacting with you on this forum. Oh, my goodness. The pleasure is really mine. So tell us, we'll just dive in. How common is weight loss surgery? So roughly 250,000 procedures are done per year for weight loss surgery. But if you look at the overall scheme of things and look at the population or the prevalence of obesity, this is only 1% of eligible patients that are actually undergoing surgical treatment. 
So it's a really underutilized tool currently that we have for the treatment of obesity. Oh my goodness. And uh, I know obesity is rising and it's projected to be even a lot more people with obesity by 2030. Why is this number so low who are taking the option for bariatric or weight loss surgery? I think part of it is a knowledge gap for both providers and for patients. You know, part of it is surgical lore and the complications that people hear about. There are a lot of anecdotes about things that can happen to patients who have had bariatric surgery, but the evidence is really good that surgery is a safe and effective tool for patients suffering from obesity. And just like any other chronic disease, once medical management has been tried and has not been successful, we need to escalate our treatments. And obesity is just like you said, is like a chronic disease. So if we had a diabetic who wasn't controlled with just medical management alone, then we would offer medications or further treatments. And that's how we should look at obesity as well. And I think that there's a knowledge gap in that perception currently for obesity, that because we don't have the same markers that tell us how severe obesity is, people kind of underestimate the disease and see it more as a social phenomenon than an actual medical condition. I'll give you an example. For people who have diabetes, we can follow their hemoglobin A1C, and we know that at a certain point, they're high and they need to be controlled. When we look at obesity, there's no obesity marker and there's no blood test to look at your obesity levels. We're going by proxy levels like hemoglobin A1C or high blood pressure or heart conditions. And so until the disease is very severe, we're really not seeing it. So providers don't know to recommend these or to give the patients information about this early on. Similarly, there's a lack of discussion about these procedures with the patient. So when we looked at data, when we sampled primary care physicians, we saw that 70% of interactions, no bariatric surgery was even mentioned. And the majority of the time, patients were asking their doctors about bariatric surgery rather than bariatric surgery being on the table as an option for these patients. That's why I think with the lack of knowledge on the effects of surgery and also an outdated fear, I would say, of the outcomes of surgery is what's driving these low numbers. And so I think that it's really on surgeons like myself and other bariatric practitioners to really educate both physicians and patients on the benefits of surgery and the surgery as an option for the treatment of obesity. I understand as a primary care, we should spend a lot more time with patients in terms of not only lifestyle modifications, but also educate the patients in terms of their options. And I think we fall short in doing that. I know when we looked at the data, primary care physicians spend less than five minutes in terms of talking about this very issue. So I think we also have to be educated, not just the patients. So we have to get busy on this. In terms of this obesity surgery, can surgery really improve the lifespan of the person? Yeah, and there have been some great studies that have come out more recently that show exactly that. Because the question is always for patients, is surgery worth it to give me a better outcome, right? And that's what providers are asking too, that with any procedure, there's risks. Are the risks actually worth taking for the outcomes of surgery? 
And there have been some really good papers published in the last few years that followed patients with obesity long-term. Now they followed patients with obesity who did have surgery and those who did not have surgery and compared their outcomes. And they actually followed these patients for 10 plus years. And when you look at the outcomes, they showed that patients who did not undergo surgery actually were more likely to die earlier than the patients who did have surgery. So there was increased risk of death in patients who did not undergo surgery compared to those who did undergo surgery. And if you look at other studies at specific causes of mortality, they showed that patients with obesity who did not undergo surgery had increased risk of death from cardiac causes than for patients who did undergo surgery. So the way that I tell my patients is, even with the risks of surgery, bariatric surgery can actually increase the quality and quantity of a person's life. Understandably. I know on our first podcast, we outlined the improvement of surrogate markers for obesity, right? Like, for example, blood pressure control, insulin sensitivity, glycemic control, and what have you. Plus, improvement of the quality of life of the patient. Patients can move more. They have less wear and tear on their joints. They have also betterment of mood and their depression, etc. So I think overall, if you look at those surrogate markers improving, we only know that the overall outcome will be greater, right? Including overall survival and decrease in mortality. I would say well, you know, is surgery then will be my magic treatment for my obesity? More about that. It's not a magic pill, unfortunately. You know, my patients who undergo surgery work very, very hard. And that's, I think, when we were talking about the misconceptions of surgery and why people don't undergo surgery, a lot of people think, oh, it's the easy way out. I don't want to take the easy way out. But I disagree. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done before patients even get to surgery. So patients are monitored preoperatively to make sure that they're adopting healthy lifestyle changes, that's eating, physical activity, and actually losing some weight before surgery. Believe it or not, we have to have our patients lose some weight before surgery so that surgery is safer because we have to shrink the liver so that it stays out of our way during surgery. And overall, we see better outcomes when patients lose weight preoperatively. So that's already a lot of hard work even before they get to surgery. After surgery, the lifestyle modifications are crucial. Really learning how to eat, maintaining those healthy habits, being physically active, and then taking long-term vitamins because surgery can alter some vitamin absorption. These are all really, really important things that our patients need to adapt to. And that's one of the reasons why we have a bariatric center, because these lifestyle modifications and the way of life after bariatric surgery need support. There's a lot of emotional changes, social changes, physical changes, and we need to monitor all of these things. So our patients really have this lifelong relationship with our clinic because we're following them initially very frequently, and then eventually yearly we're following them to ensure that they're doing well and that there's no issues. That's wonderful. Is there a specific weight loss target before they even get under the knife? Yeah, we try to do at least 10% of their excess body weight. We try to have them lose that before they go to surgery. But yeah. is that part of the overall gauging their commitment to this? 
some of it, I would say yes and no, because for example, a lot of my patients, they cannot be physically active because they have bad knees and they're waiting for surgery. And the surgery is actually going to bridge them to a joint replacement. But in logging and in going through evaluations with our psychologists to make sure that they have appropriate support, it is making sure that the environment is created for them to go through. So part of it is their commitment and their environment, but it's not supposed to be a burden on them. It's more to train them before getting to the operation. I tell all my patients, surgery is like a marathon, you know, and life after surgery is like a marathon. You have to be in it for the long haul. So if you can't do the pre-training, then post run is going to be really hard. That's why they really need to work with us and we support them to meet those milestones before surgery. Well, since you were talking about bridging this to other surgical procedures, for example, like a a joint replacement, right? Like a total hip or knee surgery. So tell me what are then the indications for surgery? Sure. So anyone with a BMI of over 35 who has some comorbid conditions such as heart disease, GERD, diabetes, hypertension, or sleep apnea would qualify for surgery or a BMI of 40, even without any of those comorbid conditions. Right. For our audience, GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease or reflux. So yeah, and I understand we always compare in medicine, you know, medical intervention versus surgical intervention. Could you help us define those differences and the benefits of medicals as opposed to surgicals? And why is that important? Whenever we look at, I guess, the success from weight loss, we have to look at two things. We have to see the actual weight loss, and we have to see the durability of the weight loss. So when we've done studies, we've shown that surgery time and time again will have greater weight loss, but not only that, they'll have sustained weight loss. So weight loss is really hard, and that's why obesity is such an epidemic. Even for patients who are losing a significant amount of weight, they will tend to gain it back. You know, I have patients who lose 60, 80 pounds and then they're gaining it right back. And so it's very difficult to maintain that long-term weight loss. Data shows that surgery will sustain this weight loss long-term. So we're talking about years after the procedure. And depending on the particular type of surgery, patients are expected to lose about between 20 to 30% of their total body weight after surgery, which is a significant amount more than you would see with medical weight loss. Yeah, understandable, because some people would need to lose 100 pounds. Well, I've seen few of my patients who have lost that with medications and diet and exercise program, but I understand the sustainability of that model is actually quite limited, Uh right? So you discuss about the indications for surgery and what are the relative contraindications or absolute contraindications for bariatric surgery? Like I said, when we look at the patient, we kind of look at them holistically. So we have to make sure that they can tolerate general anesthesia because this patient has to be completely asleep for the surgery. We have to make sure they have good emotional and social support because there's a lot of changes that come with surgery that will require support from family and require the patient to be in a good emotional space to be able to tolerate and be able to cope with those changes. In terms of actual health contraindications, so when we look at the specific operations, when we look at the gastric bypass, 
for patients who have chronic diarrhea or things like Crohn's disease that might require surgery on the small intestine later, those are relative contraindications because that can affect the absorption of nutrients in the future. If you get some of your small intestine cut out because of Crohn's, or if you have chronic diarrhea, that can be made worse with the surgery. And so that can really impact a patient's quality of life and nutrition in the future, which we don't want. We don't want to go the opposite direction. I see. So you evaluate the patients and kind of weigh all those risks for them. Absolutely. And I suppose the discussion involves their preferences and how much weight loss is. Yeah, it's all about education and empowering. But within that scope, I would also say my duty is to do what's safe and what is the best procedure for my patients. Because in my opinion, there's no such thing as a small surgery, no matter what surgery you're getting. It's a big intervention, but it has great outcomes and great safety profiles. But nonetheless, it's a big intervention. And for example, if I see a patient with really bad acid reflux, then I'm going to say, do not undergo a sleeve gastrectomy because that can actually be made worse with the procedure. And that can actually lead to things called Barrett's esophagus, which can ultimately lead to an increased risk of esophageal cancer, et cetera. So we have to educate the patient about those things. So preference, I would say, of course, the patient has to be comfortable with the procedure that they undergo. At the same time, I try to educate as much as possible about what is a good procedure for them, what is beneficial. For example, we know from studies that gastric bypass has greater durability long-term than a sleeve gastrectomy. So if I have a young patient, let's say with bad diabetes, who needs a long-term durable operation, and that is a very good operation for diabetes, then the gastric bypass would be the way to go unless they had some contraindication. If I had a patient who was very sick, let's say they're on the kidney transplant list and they're just very sick, they can't tolerate a lot of fluid changes, then for that patient, maybe the sleeve gastrectomy is the better choice. So within reason, that's why it's a discussion with the patient, that they have to feel comfortable with the procedure they're getting, but really I have to also educate them so that they have the same information that I do when making these choices and feeling comfortable with the procedure. Right. Now with the big stuff that we have to discuss now, could you help the audience, like what are the approved contemporary types of surgeries and maybe explain what is being achieved, whether if you could discuss like, what is it? Is it restrictive? Is it malabsorptive? Or is it a combination on both and discuss perhaps, the pros and the cons of each one? So the first and probably one of the most common operations that we see is the gastric bypass. So in a gastric bypass, we take the normal stomach and we create a small pouch, about 30 milliliters in volume, and we reroute the intestines. So the intestines are cut down here and rerouted to connect with the small pouch and then reconnected to the, what we call the biliopancreatic limb, meaning the limb that has all the enzymes, digestive enzymes. So food comes down here and the digestive enzymes come here. And it's really here that food is getting reabsorbed. So because the pouch is small, this is mainly a restrictive operation, although it has a little bit of some malabsorptive component, meaning things are not being absorbed until later. So the absorption is altered as well. 
would that also change our gut hormones? Yes. And I'm actually going to come to that point actually a little bit later after I describe all the operations. Oh, okay. okay. All sort of deal with the gut hormones. And I'll explain that in just a second. So here we see restrictive and a little bit of malabsorptive. With the sleeve gastrectomy, which is now has become the most common operation performed in the U.S., what happens is that we take that floppy portion of the stomach and we cut it out. And now the patient is left with a stomach that's roughly the size and shape of a banana. And so this is purely restrictive because they just can't eat as much. The next operation, and this is less commonly performed, is called a biliopancreatic diversion with duodenal switch. It's a mouthful. So in this operation, again, we cut the floppy part of the stomach so that the stomach is smaller. But now we are bypassing more of the intestine. So in a gastric bypass, we bypass a lot less of the intestine than in this operation. And so this is a far more malabsorptive procedure than the gastric bypass, but it also has some restrictive components. I would say of all of the procedures that I just discussed, this one is the one we worry about malnutrition the most because you can see that common channel where both the digestive enzymes and the food is meeting is very, very short. And so you don't absorb as much and there's opportunity for more malabsorption with this procedure. So with all three of these procedures, Dr. Gabiola, just like you mentioned, there's a metabolic component. And what I mean by that is you actually have a lot of hormonal changes almost immediately after surgery. So we know that the hunger hormone, which is called ghrelin, we know that that's suppressed in all of these operations. We also see increase in other hormonal factors that contribute to decreasing the general inflammation in the body and increasing insulin sensitivity, et cetera. Now, how do we know this? It's because if you actually look at how patients do after surgery, a lot of my patients come off of their diabetes medications and their antihypertensives within two weeks of having surgery. That's before any significant weight loss can occur. And so that's why we know that there's something else going on that's driving these things. And while we understand a little bit of the metabolomics, if you will, of bariatric surgery, there's a lot more that we're studying. And that's actually one of the things that we are doing at UC Davis is we've put together a team to look at the metabolomics of bariatric surgery because it is so complex and so important. One other operation I'm going to present, just because I get questions about this all the time from patients and doctors, is what about this gastric band? This was all the rage in the 2000s. And I would say, fortunately, we don't do this operation anymore because it really wasn't very effective and there were a lot of complications. And this operation, we're essentially placing a belt around the top part of the stomach to make a very small pouch. And so it's purely restrictive. People can't eat very much with this because it's not very effective and because there are a lot of issues with this foreign object eroding into the stomach or causing obstructions. We don't do this operation and very few people do this operation anymore. So that causes like what perforation and dislodgement of that? It and can or small bowel? Not in the small bowel, but in the stomach itself. So it sometimes when it's so tight and it's not only the band itself, but there's an inflammatory capsule that the body forms around any foreign object. And sometimes it's that capsule that can also be restrictive. 
So we've had to remove a lot of, and we see this a lot more now, we've had to remove a lot of these bands. And some of these bands are eroding into the stomach. And some of these bands are causing people not to be able to really eat. And when we have things like this, where it's too restrictive, we actually get a phenomenon called paradoxical weight gain, because people are now incorporating maladaptive behaviors in order to eat. So instead of eating normal healthy foods, now they're drinking high calorie liquids because they think that they need the nutrition. They're not able to keep anything down. And so often these people you'll see will have weight regain rather than any weight loss. How about the other procedures that they talk about, like the balloon, the aspiration? Are, are those accepted? I have to check the Aspire. In, in some countries that is approved, I believe, but it's still very new. With the balloon, I did some studies while I was at Stanford for residency, and we saw that the balloon was effective even after removing the balloon after a certain amount of time. You know, the balloon is not forever. It's only there for six months or so, exactly. So when it's removed, the question is, how do people respond? And there's some positive studies showing that they maintain that weight loss after the balloon is removed, but we need further studies on that. And again, it's a foreign object that's mm -hmm. in the abdomen. So there's always complications related to that. The Aspire actually has some really positive results. And just for the audience, the Aspire is essentially a tube that goes into the stomach that empties out the stomach after the person eats. It's like vomiting, but done in a very medical way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the patient had controlled that, right? Exactly, exactly. It's quite unsavory, in my opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the results are actually very promising with the Aspire. So we'll have to see how things are, how things progress with that. Help me explain, like you said that the balloon, even after you remove it, the people sustain it. Is that because the people now are on a different set threshold, the threshold change? for you know, eating? That's a really good question. I think some of it might be the behavioral changes that they learned. But again, we haven't really studied the metabolomics of a balloon. That's really an important question is, are things changing because patients are having to eat less and it's a restrictive procedure? Hmm. The other thing that we consider is the genetics of obesity. So I was at a recent conference where they talked about the homeostasis for patients with a history of obesity being different. You know, in some patients, the homeostasis is different, which requires greater calories. And so the balance tips towards being heavier. And so the question is, do any of those things change when we do things like the balloon and the Aspire? Because sometimes we do see those changes in patients who undergo surgery, but it's not in everyone. I guess it also depends on how long the person has been obese, right? Yeah, absolutely. Outcomes are also based on that. A hundred percent. So it's just like, you know, again, I bring the comparison to diabetes. Someone who has diabetes for a long time, it's harder to treat. It's harder to manage. Same thing with obesity for patients who are coming in with a higher BMI, even after, let's say the gastric bypass, which I consider to be one of the best operations, the Tesla of operations, if you will, for weight loss, <laughs> even then those patients may not lose as much as if they had come in with a lower BMI. So hmm. it's definitely something to educate patients about before undergoing surgery and to educate providers to refer them 
for evaluation for surgery earlier so that their disease doesn't progress. But tell me about insurance. <laughs> well, is, it, is this covered largely by insurance companies? Yeah, so most insurances will cover bariatric surgery. And it's because I think it's very evident how beneficial this is. Now, there's always nuances with insurance, unfortunately, in what kind of testing is covered and what kind of care is covered. But for the most part, most insurances will accept or will cover the cost of bariatric surgery. And in fact, some post-operative operations as well, such as a paniculectomy, which is removal of the excess skin and soft tissue that patients can have after extreme weight loss. Also, that's also covered. Yeah, I mean, you know, obesity causes a lot of these medical consequences. It will be a tremendous economic savings if we we could impact the outcome, right? Absolutely. Could you discuss laparoscopic versus open surgery? Like when you have to open the belly as opposed to working on four holes? Absolutely. Yeah, I love those pictures because I cannot possibly think about uh, anastomosis where you hook up one to the other, you know? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, those were elaborate pictures that you shared with us. So at least <laughs> the audience would know which is connecting to what. Yeah. Which I think it's very important to understand the anatomy for both providers and patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for the audience, malabsorption means like decrease absorption, right? So, so malabsorptive surgery talks about like how much surface area you have for absorption of the nutrients. Right. So with laparoscopy, it's really changed the way that, changed the outcomes for bariatric surgery. Because before, if this is the body, we would make one big incision up here in the upper abdomen. And that can have a lot of consequences in the future. It increases your hernia risks, and then it increases your scar tissue and adhesion, which makes future operations very difficult for these patients. Now what we do is, and this is an example, this is a laparoscopic gallbladder, but it's just an example of of the instruments that we use. We make little incisions, insert a camera, and then use tools to basically do what our hands are doing. So what I compare it to is like a screwdriver versus a power drill, that your handyman is still doing all the work, but they're just using a different tool in order to get it done. So this is what ports would typically look like in a bariatric patient. Usually people are using four to five ports, uh, sometimes six ports, in order to do this operation safely for these patients. And you can imagine we're basically doing this complex rearrangement all laparoscopically. And we can do it fairly quickly too, quickly and safely. So the outcomes have really changed. And that's why I want to educate my fellow physicians is that those complications that we were seeing before, a lot of it is outdated data from before laparoscopy really hit the ground running. And so the safety profile now is incredible. And in fact, bariatric surgery is one of the safest operations that a person can undergo. It's as safe or even more safe than some of elective operations, such as gallbladder surgery or hernia surgery. Yeah, I remembered one of our surgeons who volunteered to go with me to the Philippines was a bariatric surgeon, and they wanted him to do circumcision. And he said, I haven't done circumcision since medical school. And one of our surgeons in the Philippines had to teach him. This guy who is so 
big in bariatric surgery yeah. is doing circumcision. <laughs> I believe it because it's a completely different kind of surgery you know, when we're from when we go open to laparoscopic. And a lot of laparoscopic surgeons will tell you they're a lot more comfortable these days with the laparoscopic than they would be in doing a big open operation. I mean, it's amazing that you could see all the anatomy with all those five holes, you know, and then you could do suturing and all this stuff. It amazes me. But for the audience, it really decreases also your hospitalization, uh, the number of hospital days. And as you mentioned, a lot lesser complications than if you have to have your belly open. And with all of this, you mentioned that the expected weight loss is anywhere from 30 to 35% of their total total body body weight. Yeah. So with the gastric bypass, it's about 30 to 35% of the total body weight or percent total body weight versus 20 to 25% with a sleeve gastrectomy. Well, with medications for the audience, you know, you're lucky if you even get like 5% or 2% weight loss. So when we talk about medications, you're talking about loss of like two to four kilograms with medications. And with a lot of lifestyle modification, I know there are a lot of successful people out there who became really passionate about maintaining a good diet regimen and exercise, and they lost 50 pounds. But as you mentioned, that usually is not sustained. But I've seen people who really continued to keep that weight loss, but phenomenal discipline, stuff like that, which you still have to continue doing even after bariatric surgery. Uh Right. So tell me complications of surgeries. Yeah. So the complication rates, like I said, is very low. But some of the big things that we can potentially get with this operation, the the biggest thing is what we call a leak. Because here in the two operations that I do are the gastric bypass and the sleeve gastrectomy. So I'll explain those in more detail. So when we do a gastric bypass, we're reconnecting things. And the reconnections, the anastomoses are never as good as the real life thing. There's always a potential to leak. Fortunately, the leak rates are less than 1% for these operations. They're very, very low but it can be a potentially big complication to deal with, especially with the sleeve gastrectomy. The construction of the sleeve is very, very important because narrowing at the distal part and the lower part of the stomach can actually create a very, very high pressure environment and change the angles such that you get a leak up here where near where the gastroesophageal junction is. And a leak up there can be very, very difficult to manage with a sleeve gastrectomy. So I warn my sleeve gastrectomy patients that, yes, this is a simpler operation than the gastric bypass, but it doesn't mean that a complication is any simpler. A big operation is still a big operation. The other things that we see more commonly with a gastric bypass are things like a marginal ulcer, and that's an ulcer right here at this junction. And that can happen, mostly it happens in patients who are smokers or who are using NSAIDs, so aspirin, ibuprofen. Motrin, Aleve, et cetera. And so we really encourage those patients, if they need to be, let's say that they have chronic pain and need to take the NSAIDs for pain relief, then those patients will probably be better suited with a sleep gastrectomy. NSAIDs is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Any other complications, any sort of like dumping or too much malabsorption and any of this? 
Absolutely. So with the dumping, you can get it with gastric bypass and sleep. And so dumping is when a high carbohydrate load is taken and it can cause flushing and diarrhea. And it's due to the insulin surges that you see after these diets. And there's early and delayed dumping. Definitely one way to avoid this is just to eat lots of protein, limit the carbohydrates. And it's not, nothing is all or none. There's always a moderation in everything. And so really working with the dietitians and learning what's good for one's particular needs is really, really important after this surgery because it's not one size fits all. Some patients will do better with, than others with certain diets and modifications. And so really working with the dietitians to cater those habits and those behaviors is important. So in your team, you have a slew of people working with you, uh, the dietitian. Do yeah. you have psychologists also? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And you bring up a really important point because the benefit of a bariatric program is the team. And I say that the surgeon is the smallest part of that team because what I do is just one tiny part of a person's weight loss journey. So we have dietitians, we have nurse practitioners and PAs or advanced practitioners who follow these patients long-term. We have a psychologist who does an evaluation before surgery and also available for knees after surgery. And then our nurse coordinator. And really all of these people are essential to make sure that the patient is meeting milestones before surgery, that they're not having any complications after surgery, that should they have any issues after surgery, they're caught early and that they're addressed. And the benefit of having a big team is that we can follow these patients long-term. And if you look at the data, people who, who keep their follow-up appointments long-term after bariatric surgery are actually more successful than the people who don't follow. And they actually keep off more weight than the patients who don't follow. And so it's really our team is there to support and protect rather than really to stress people out. We're not here to stress people out. We're yeah, just here to support yeah. them through their journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, we had proven that again and again, even in medical intervention, the adherence of patients in taking long-term medications is yeah. so low. And I think that emphasizes the connection that is so important between the provider and the patient. So, Absolutely. yeah, so I salute you for having a team like that. So tell me, besides weight loss, what are the other benefits of bariatric surgery? So like we talked about, the quality of life and the quantity of life definitely are really important. Let's just talk about the physical effects of surgery. So decrease in cardiovascular markers, decrease in inflammation. So obesity is a disease of inflammation. You know, I can see that when I go into the belly of a person who has what I call metabolic syndrome versus somebody who doesn't. It's very evident because their tissues are easily ripped and they're unhealthy tissue. And so the manifestation of that disease is there. There are markers that indicate metabolic syndrome. So the cholesterol markers, hemoglobin A1C, CRP, which is a C-reactive protein or a marker of inflammation. So all of those have been proven to go down with bariatric surgery as early as three months after surgery. And again, that's before you reach your maximal weight loss potential. Patients also have great outcomes in terms of sleep apnea. So my patients, one of the things they love is getting off of their CPAP. And this surgery really helps them get off their CPAP, get, get off their diabetes medication, get off their high blood pressure medication. 
And then also some things that you won't expect. There's neurological benefits to this surgery. Memory improves. We already talked about psychological health that improves, emotional health that improves, depression, cognitive ability improves after surgery. And one of the most interesting things that I love about surgery is it actually affects family members. My mentor at Stanford did a study that showed that there's a halo effect of surgery where family members of patients who had bariatric surgery also lost weight because they're all engaging in these behavioral and lifestyle changes together. So there's a lot of benefits beyond the physical and beyond the weight loss. I am so fascinated by this. I'm sure like getting rid of that CPAP contraption at nighttime will improve also the relationship with your partner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. But you know, like you mentioned that it improves mood and stuff like that. I'm just curious, is depression a contraindication for surgery? I mean, we see people who are obese and are so depressed or with people with a stable bipolar illness. Those are not contraindications for surgery, are they? No, a lot of, there is a strong correlation between depression and obesity and with these other mood disorders. And we see these patients all the time and they can safely undergo surgery. The one contraindication I will say when I talk about safe emotional space is that for patients who have suicidal ideation or drug abuse, for those patients, we have to monitor and make sure that they have none of those activities for at least a year before we will do surgery. And it's for patient safety. Because what happens is that with the rerouting of the intestines, for example, with gastric bypass, patients who consume alcohol, they're going to get drunk faster because now the body is seeing the alcohol much quicker absorbed into the small intestine. Whereas with the normal anatomy, they can break it down. There's slower absorption. And so the metabolism of alcohol is different. Similarly, there's also drug or addiction transfer rather. So what we don't want is for patients who have a strong history of addiction to come and now having bad coping mechanisms are going back on drugs because it's unhealthy for them after surgery. So we want them in a safe mental space before surgery, but it doesn't mean that their depression has to be cured or they can't be bipolar. Those are all going to improve with surgery. Perfect. Perfect. I'm glad that I asked that question. So I'm one of your partners in this medical surgical intervention. How could you improve the way we do things? How about would you tell me as a medical provider and a primary care practitioner? Absolutely. And again, I think when we look at the low prevalence of surgery and the prevalence of obesity in general, I think it really is on bariatric surgeons and bariatric providers to educate our colleagues and our patients. So what I would say is, if you have any questions whatsoever that this patient is eligible for surgery, if you have a patient who has morbid obesity, whether or not they have any medical problems, whether or not you think that they would be a good candidate for surgery, just refer them to us because that's our job. You know, if somebody has a wiring problem at home, they're gonna go to their electrician, they're not gonna go to their plumber. It's the same thing with, if you want an expert advice on whether a patient is a good candidate for bariatric surgery, send them over to us so that we can evaluate. Because in truth, surgery is not for everybody. And like I said, we assess the patient as a whole. And we have the tools and the team to assess the patient as a whole. And I can't put that burden on a primary care physician who has 
maybe 20 minutes with the patient in the office, right? So let us take on that burden to evaluate that patient and empower that patient. Primary care physicians can empower their patient by saying, look, you have a chronic illness and, and to normalize what it is, this is a chronic illness. So you have a chronic illness and just like I would treat your diabetes and if I couldn't treat your diabetes, I would send you to an endocrinologist. Right now you have obesity, we need to treat it. Let's send you over to an obesity expert so you can learn about your treatment options. And I think having a conversation like that and really normalizing that conversation, because let's be honest, there's a lot of stigma associated with obesity. And so we don't want patients to not get treated because they feel stigmatized, that they feel like they're a failure if they haven't been able to achieve weight loss. That's not the case at all. I'm glad you mentioned about the stigma, just like the stigma in mental health. You know, it's not the same one for one. Like we treat people with hypertension and diabetes and cancer. Nobody talks about that. But then when you look at obesity, they yeah. look at it like you're a loser. You did this yeah. to yourself, right? So I'm glad that you mentioned about the stigma. Could you give us some take-home points, uh, Shasmita, before we sure. part? Absolutely. So I would say that bariatric surgery is a great tool for weight loss in patients who need it that bariatric surgery is an underutilized tool and education of both providers and patients can help us better empower our patients to come and learn about these tools and make the right choice for them. I think bariatric is a safe and effective tool for weight loss that has multiple benefits beyond the physical. So beyond weight loss, there's multiple effects on comorbidities and hormones and emotional, you know, depression mental health, et cetera, but also on the family, like we talked about. And finally, if you feel free to reach out to your neighborhood bariatric surgeon, if you have any questions, because there's a lot, as you already mentioned, we went over time because there's a lot to talk about. So don't feel shy to, to reach out to these surgeons and team members to learn more because our job is to help the patient find the best treatment for them. And we can only do that if we work together. Perfect. So they could always contact you at UC Davis, right? Just meet up. I really would like to thank you for this. I'm so proud of you. Look at you. Now I'm one of your students. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me blush. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so honored. Thank you for all of your mentorship and all of your kindness. <laughs> well, you know, I'm in the ripple effect of what we do. And this is what really gives us pleasure. And I'm so inspired with what you're doing now. And let's stay connected. Absolutely. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you so much, Smita. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you in our next episode.